Hello and welcome back to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski. And today we're going to be talking about a very wholesome person in a very turbulent and slightly disturbing history. And what that is, is we're going to be talking about the Dalai Lama, the history of the Dalai Lama, and the history of Tibet. But before we get into any of that, I would encourage you to follow me on Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast. Um, if you have any sources you want me to use in later episodes or you have any topics that you think I should cover, you can send all that to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And below in the show notes, you can see a link to my Patreon as well as single donations. And lastly, follows, reviews, downloads, and recommendations are really helping the show to grow. So if you want to do any of that, write a review, subscribe, download. If you do any of those things, it is super helpful to grow the show. So thank you very much if you do any of the above. And without further ado, let's get on with it. So first, I want to talk about the Bon religion in pre-Buddhist Tibet. Why? Because we need a little bit of prehistory. We need to talk about pre-Buddhist Tibet, you know? So the Tibetan plateau has been inhabited since prehistoric times, and people were believed to first occupy the area 21,000 years ago. This population was considered to be replaced or integrated with Neolithic northern Chinese migrants around 3000 BCE. Megalithic monuments around Tibet are considered by historians to have once been used in ancestral worship by pre-Buddhist Tibetans. These are the people that some Tibetans and some historians believe are the beginnings to the original Bon people. Also, the people believed to have performed any divination tactics that modern Tibetan Buddhist monks still use, one of which being mirror gazing that we talked about last episode. Now we're going to talk about the Zhangjiang Kingdom from 500 BCE to 625 CE. And these were the people who resided in the far western Tibet regions and eventually migrated to a more centralized location in Tibet, which is now called Guj. Guj in particular was a very interesting kingdom for a little while, and there's still ruins of it in Tibet, and it's just a very mysterious place. Definitely deserves its own episode. But from what we know of the Zhangjiang, this was one of the sort of last holdouts of pre-Buddhist shamanism. So there was a lot of ancestral worship, there was probably polytheism, but from what we can tell archaeologically, we don't necessarily know the structure of the religion. We just know certain aspects of it. Now, it's around the 2nd century CE where things start to piece together a little bit leading up to the 7th century. And at the beginning of the 2nd century, it's said around this time that Tibetan and Kayan nomads attacked the Chinese posts of Gansu, threatening to cut off the Donghong Road. As you can probably tell by now with what I'm talking about, as well as that wave of Chinese immigrants in 3000 BCE, Tibet and China have a very close relationship that is on and off toxic. Now we're in a toxic phase currently. Yes, we all know this, but there, weren't, there wasn't always a toxic phase to their relationship, and I'm going to get into that a little bit. Not yet, though. This, this is pretty complicated at best. From the 2nd to 6th centuries is when the Yarlung dynasty of pre-imperial Tibet was said to have existed. However, its beginnings are very mythical, and its later sort of history is a bit more rooted in fact based on the Chinese perspective of Tibet at that time. 
But in its beginnings, it said that the first king was like a beast man. So, yeah, mythological. But also there's just not a lot of evidence to sort of describe the early Yarlung dynasty. So we're not really sure how it came about in the different handoffs of power that might have happened. We don't know. We just don't know a lot. It's not recorded. However, it's said that the Yarlung dynasty extended its control over the region, and by the 6th century CE, most of the Tibetan tribes were unified under its control. And we'll talk about why, because, as I said, later people affiliated with the Yarlung dynasty are recorded based on, you know, Chinese perspective as well. So they are recorded within Chinese history as well, It's just that their beginnings, the Yarlung dynasty's beginnings are very foggy and very mythological, similar to the tellings of like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Things that are political and based on probably things that were going around at the time, but heavily based in myth. However, it's the three Dharma kings that are associated with the Yarlung dynasty or the end of it. And we're going to talk about why they're called the Three Dharma Kings, but first we're going to talk about the king that sort of led up to that era. In 608 CE, King Namri Songten of Tibet sent envoys to China, and this was sort of the first initial move that put Tibet on a more international scene. However, we can only attribute the assembling of Tibet to his son Songten Gyampo, who reigned from 604 to 650 CE. It was the first great emperor who expanded Tibet's power beyond Lhasa and the Yarlung Valley. He is also traditionally credited with introducing Buddhism to Tibet, and so this is where the three kings, or three Dharma kings, sort of start, because Songchen Gampo is the first of the three Dharma kings. This is mainly due to the fact that when he started to establish Tibet as a formidable foe or great player in a more global scene, He starts to do that marrying into the family thing, and in order to establish allyships, he marries women from other countries. So he marries a woman from Nepal and a woman from India, who are both Buddhist. And they sort of introduce him to Buddhism, and for them he builds Buddhist temples in Lhasa. However, it was Trisong Detsen who invited Buddhist masters from India to Tibet and had important Buddhist texts translated into Tibetan. And he was the one who officially established Buddhism as the religion of Tibet. And so he is the second of the three Dharma kings. Rapal Chen being the third Dharma king, who is attributed to really emphasizing the travel of Buddhist monks and bringing people not just from India, but Nepal and China into Tibet to sort of grow the Buddhist presence. And the three Dharma kings are also sort of considered to be bodhisattvas in the same way that the Dalai Lama is. So they're considered to be a line of the Dalai Lama that was sort of not recorded as being the Dalai Lama or that line. The three kings are supposedly incarnations of Buddha or the Dalai Lama prior to the official beginnings of that history. So there are other people too that go a little bit further back. They're more mythological, but they are also considered to be bodhisattvas in the same way. And I'll get into what bodhisattva means in a second, but just to sort of cap all that information off, Buddhism enters the Tibetan plateau from mainly India thanks to the three Dharma kings, and it integrates with Bon shamanism. In the current view of ancient Bon through the scope of modern research, I guess we could say 
is similar to that of the Druids in relation to the Romans. We don't know a lot about the Druids, but we know they were there. We know they were shamanistic, but we don't know enough about them like we do the Romans. So similar concept between the Bon and the Buddhist influences. And in case you're wondering, the term Bodhisattva is a term from Sanskrit, and it refers to a being that has achieved enlightenment or is able to achieve enlightenment or reach nirvana, but doesn't in order to help those who are still struggling or suffering and continues to be reincarnated. So it's similar to an avatar, but avatars have a lot of different... It's more of a broad term, I want to say. Avatars can incarnate for a variety of reasons, whereas bodhisattvas have a very, you know, it's a cycle of going through the motions of enlightenment, hitting it, and then going reset button, there's still people who need help and who also deserve enlightenment. So that's where the Dalai Lama sort of comes in. Also, bodhisattva is kind of exclusive to Buddhism, whereas the term avatar can be interchangeable between Buddhism and Hinduism, although it's mainly used in the context of Hinduism. However, in the Western world, we've taken that word and used it for a variety of things that can be spiritual or fictional in a sense, but the concept of an avatar is just a deity possessing a body or incarnating into a body, whereas bodhisattva is a little bit more exclusive to Buddhism. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the official history of the Dalai Lama. So first we have to talk about Avalokiteshvara, who, you know, he's the bodhisattva that's sort of more associated with Tibet. So it's sort of the name of the Buddha, I believe, that's acting as a bodhisattva or being a bodhisattva and reincarnating. Similar to, you know, the Shakyamuni Buddha. There's, there's different Buddhas. There's Buddhism is like polytheism and monotheism at the same time. It's, it's, it's wild. Anyway, in Central Asian Buddhist countries, it's believed that for the last millennium that Avalokiteshvara has a special relationship with the people of Tibet and intervenes in their fate by incarnating as benevolent rulers and teachers such as the Dalai Lamas. And this is all according to the Book of Kadam. Kadam comes from the Kadampa school of Buddhist teachings founded by Drumshinpa, a laymaster and monk in the 11th century. And the Kadampa school was one of a few schools that got absorbed into the four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Those four being Gelugpa, Sakyapa, Kagyupa, and Niyangmapa. According to the 14th Dalai Lama, or the current Dalai Lama, long ago, Avalokiteshvara had promised the Buddha to guide and protect the Tibetan people in the late Middle Ages. His master plan to fulfill this promise was the stage-by-stage establishment of the Dalai Lama theocracy in Tibet. And if you're like, he prayed to the Buddha, I thought Avalokiteshvara was the Buddha. He is a Buddha, but there are other Buddhas. And that one was the Buddha. Who is the Buddha? The universe, I would assume. Who knows? 
However, we need to chug it along because I need to list out every single Dalai Lama. Why? Because this is me. This is me we're talking about. I'm going to list out every Dalai Lama, and I do have notes on all of them. Some more than others, but we, we have a lot to get through, so here we go. In the late 1300s, Gendon Drupa was born and is the first official Dalai Lama. Originally named Pemadorsh, he was the child of two humble nomads. His father died when he was young, so his mother put him in the care of his uncle since she could not take care of him alone. This sort of happenstance is what got him into the Kadampa school, where he received an advanced education for his age and for the time. He studied Buddhist philosophy extensively and in 1405, ordained by Narthang's abbot, he took the name of Gendandrup. In 1415, he met Song Kappa, founder of the Galugpa school, one of the main four schools, and became his student. And this meeting sort of put the first Dalai Lama on the tracks of becoming the Dalai Lama. And over time, essentially rose in ranks to the point where people around him began to believe that he was an incarnation of the Bodhisattva. Especially after the military attacks ordered by the Kagyu school, one of the main four schools, when their popularity declined as the Galugpa school's popularity rose. Now moving on to the second Dalai Lama, Gendun Gyatso Palzangpo, from 1475 to 1542, originally named Sangyang Pel. He apparently pulled a legend of Korra and proclaimed himself the avatar of Gendun Drupa at the age of three. That's fucking awesome. The third Dalai Lama is Sonam Gyatso from 1543 to 1588. When one of Tibet's kings died, a king supported by the Dagyupa, Sonam Gyatso gained dominance in political power over Tibet. The fourth Dalai Lama being Yonten Gyatso, from 1589 to 1617. He was originally born in Mongolia and the first Dalai Lama to be born outside of Tibet. And because the Nichung Monastery had predicted that the new Dalai Lama would be born in Mongolia, they set out to look in Mongolia. Sadly, this Dalai Lama struggled to gain recognition and acceptance from the Tibetan people. He eventually had to flee due to Lhasa being invaded by the Kagyu, and he died under suspicious circumstances at the age of 27. And the fifth Dalai Lama is Nyawang Lobsang Gyatso, from 1617 to 1682, known as the Great Fifth for unifying Tibet under the Ganden Fodrang government. He also gained relations with the Qing Empire of China, and for some reason, don't know why, his death was concealed for many years. And the sixth Dalai Lama was Sangyang Gyatso in 1683 to 1706. Originally, his name was Sangji Tenzin and was found late at the age of 13 or 15 because the last Dalai Lama's death was concealed for so long. He was great at poetry and the arts as well as philosophy. However, he strayed away from the teachings of the Gilug school. In 1706, the Dalai Lama was kidnapped by Mongols and killed, before then being replaced by a 21-year-old Lama named Yangwang Yeshi Gyatso, whom to this day Tibetans call a fake stand-in. Moving on to the seventh Dalai Lama, Kelzang Gyatso, from 1708 to 1757. 
he was installed as the Dalai Lama in the midst of a pretender still holding his position. After an army of Qing and Tibetan soldiers under Polhain and the Kangxi Emperor invaded Tibet, Kelsang was taken to Lhasa and installed as the seventh Dalai Lama officially. And during his time as Dalai Lama, the king or governor of Tibet was no longer appointed by the Chinese after 1750, and the Dalai Lama was recognized as the sovereign of Tibet. Now moving on to the eighth Dalai Lama, Jampel Gyatso, from 1758 to 1804. His parents were distant descendants of Darla Segyal, who was one of the major heroes of the Gisar epic. Honestly, he was a pretty laid-back guy and kind of let the Gurkhas loot southern Tibet and had to get the Qing Empire involved again. Now moving on to the ninth Dalai Lama, Lugtok Gyatso, from 1805 to 1815 died at nine years old and began an era of Dalai Lama's dying young. This era was said to be heavily supported by the Penchen Lama of the Gullug tradition. And that Lama is also very important and he's, there's nothing greater than him except the Dalai Lama. Then we have the 10th Dalai Lama, Soltrim Gyatso from 1816 to 1837. He died young at the age of 22 after an outbreak of illness in Lhasa. Then there's Kedrup Gyatso from 1838 to 1856. During his time, wars weakened Tibetan and Chinese power over the region, but Tibetans regained control during the Nepalese Tibetan Wars. And he died suddenly at the age of 18. Don't know how. Then there is the 12th Dalai Lama, Trinli Gyatso from 1857 to 1875. His short life coincided with a very politically turbulent time for Tibet. Tibet particularly suffered from the weakening of the Qing dynasty, which had previously provided Tibet with some support against the British Empire, which was aiming to influence Tibet as an expansion from its colonialism of India. He was fully enthroned as Dalai Lama in March of 1873, but would then soon die in 1875. Now moving on to the 13th Dalai Lama, Thubten Gyatso from 1876 to 1933. And this is sort of the end of the short-lived Dalai Lama era. He was enthroned during a turbulent era in the collapse of the Qing dynasty, referred to as the Great 13th. Is known for redeclaring Tibet's national independence and for his reform and modernization initiatives. He was responsible for countering the British expedition to Tibet, restoring discipline in monastic life, and increasing the number of lay officials to avoid excessive power being placed in the hands of the monks. Now, we get to talk about the current Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, born 1935. In 1940, was taken to the Batarla Palace and installed as the spiritual leader of Tibet, and at the age of six, he began his monastic education. So this early education that he and all the other Dalai Lamas had to go through was the curriculum, which was derived from the Nalanda tradition and consisted of five major and five minor subjects. I 
don't know what all the major subjects are, but I do know that Sanskrit grammar and fine arts are some of them. Why I only know some, I don't know. I don't know. For some reason, I only put two down. (laughs) Sadly, we have to talk about the Chinese presence of Tibet in about 1950. Around that time, Tibet was under heavy influence from the Chinese military during the Cultural Revolution. At the age of 16, Tenzin Gyatso was called upon to become the head of state of Tibet. A general of China then extended a seemingly innocent invitation to His Holiness and then said, no Tibetan soldiers were allowed to accompany him. I believe this was after he had already met with Chairman Mao in China, which there's a movie about this, about the whole situation, if you've seen it. Mao's a dick. And it's really awkward. (laughs) But I believe this happens after that. This caused the Tibetan people to panic. Tens of thousands took to begging and praying outside his residence, asking him not to attend the show alone. The Dalai Lama then disguised himself as a soldier and with a small escort escaped through the crowd and headed south for the Indian border. And it was official in 1959 that he escaped to India. This mainly happened due to a resistance group that had formed in southern Tibet in 1958 that had formed in order to fight off Chinese military occupation in the south. So because they had fled south, they were able to meet up with these guys and they escorted the Dalai Lama to India. Tibet, however, after this, especially Lhasa, was heavily occupied by the Chinese soldiers. Occupation was initially brutal. Soldiers force monks and nuns to do basically horrifically traumatizing things to break them emotionally and spiritually. We're not going to go into what you can find out on Google. I encourage you to learn, but we're not going to talk about that here. Sorry, I'm not down for that. Prisons were then just filled with native Tibetans and monks, and what goes down is just... Brutality. It's just ridiculous. So, there are still Tibetans there today. Most of the Tibetans haven't left. The only people who fled are those who've, like, barely managed to are those who left with the Dalai Lama. So, still not the greatest of circumstances. And we'll talk about what's going on right right now in a little bit. We gotta cover some stuff first. But this is still a very current issue. Since leaving Tibet, His Holiness spends most of his time traveling and holding lectures on Buddhist philosophy. In 2008, there was an outbreak of violent protests in Tibet in outrage of the Chinese government, and so China has been doing a sort of damage control since then. During these protests, monks in Tibet reported wrongful imprisonment of other monks and civilians, as well as performing execution-style killings. After this, the Chinese government agreed to have a communicative relationship with the Dalai Lama, however, would not accept any separatist ideals and activities. Which, it's kind of like saying, we're not going to negotiate, but we're not going to tell you we're not negotiating. Real roundabout way to say that. Tibet today is being altered by China in a way where the Chinese government is providing amazing living conditions and performing recommended possibly forced relocating of people in the highlands to gain loyalty from the Tibetan population. And the reason why I say possibly forced is because it's just been going around 
that it might be. However, there have been journalists who have gone and haven't seen any signs, but they've also been like, we're on a government-organized trip. China's going to avoid that. So it's, it's unclear if that's happening. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it's better conditions, but done for the sake of control. So it's... Some people are benefiting from it, probably, but in the greater scheme of things, it's fucked up. And it's weird because, you know, in the Middle Ages, China and Tibet had a decent relationship and would, like, team up to fight off the Mongols. And they had a similar relationship that, I want to say, Egypt having control over Canaan. Like, it was very similar to that. In the sense that it had its autonomy, but was still on and off governed by this much bigger empire that sort of acted as a big brother in a sense. But never really before did China just come right in and say, it's ours. And then they just did that. But it's not, it's Tibet. <laughs> now the Chinese government is like, oh, the new Dalai Lama is going to be born in China. And the Dalai Lama is like, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. He's actually admitted that he might be the last Dalai Lama because they don't know where the next one's going to be born, if he's going to be born in Tibet, and if they can even get him. And it, I don't know the logistics behind what's going on, but I don't think they've been able to predict the birth of the next Dalai Lama because, you know, they use tools like scrying to figure out where the next Dalai Lama is going to be born. So I'd imagine if you're a Buddhist monk, that's a very scary thought. To not have your god be reincarnated, which is, you know, culturally significant and has happened since, I don't know, the past 1,000 years about. And to have lost their homeland, along with the end of the Dalai Lama line, is just, it's just heartbreaking. That's just sad. They weren't fucking with nobody. I mean, they were screwing with the Chinese way, way back when they first had posts in the West. However, it doesn't, it does not compare. It's not, it's not. Like, China needs to chill. China needs to chill. There's a scene from the reenactment movie, The Dalai Lama. I forget which year it is. I don't know if there's multiple ones. I don't know. There's a scene between the Dalai Lama and Chairman Mao, and it's very weird. It's very weird. Like, they're being polite, and then the Dalai Lama's like, oh, yeah, some of your ideas are interesting. Let's talk about it. And then Mao keeps interrupting him and then saying something like really positive like oh this is what's so great about you but it's just forceful and strange and then after bringing up the monastery he's like oh i should you should you needed to learn something religion is poison and he's like oh like just calmly just looking back at him probably wanting to sock him in the face but because he's a wholesome freaking monk he just stares at him and then, then he's like, I'll be on my way. And then just leaves. And he's like, we gotta get out of here. It's, it's, it's a very chilling scene. 
especially because he's like religion is poison and then they're walking out of the place and he's like coughing because he just keeps smoking cigarettes it's just it's a very well done scene in my opinion and it's funny because in the west i feel like we see a lot of religion getting a little too forceful and being the ones of like this is how we do things now and then everyday civilians being subject to that whereas is kind of the reverse in the situation. China wants to come in, abolish religion, and establish a classless, supposedly, allegedly, classless system. And Tibet, which has a spiritual hierarchy, is like, I think we're okay. I think we're fine. Thank you, though. It's really nice of you to offer, but don't come over here. And then China's like, no, I'm going to do it. And then Tibet's like, oh, no. <sighs> oh, no. And... You just don't see it too often. I feel like a lot of religions and a lot of institutions get abused very easily. Whereas Tibet, it probably had its moments here and there, but like in terms of history, it's pretty, you know, it's just an education system. It's not, it's not really even a monarchy at this point. It's really just ran by the Dalai Lama. And it was fine that way, according to them. <laughs> it was fine. They didn't mind it. They didn't mind having nomadic lifestyles. They didn't mind being cattle herders. They didn't mind being Buddhist monks. I don't think they fucking minded. And it's just another situation in which a larger empire, a larger country is like, I think my presence is required. And everybody else is like, no, it's not. Stop. And they don't. Because no one's wanting to stop them. Not that Tibet can. I'm talking about the United States and the Brits and everybody else who's just like, yeah, that's not okay, but what are we going to do about it? What are we going to, we can't get involved except if it's Afghanistan. <laughs> oh God, we can't, we can't go there right now. That's a, that's a whole different tragedy. Although I don't want to I don't want to end this on tragedy, so I will say a few fun facts about the Dalai Lama. So, in recent years, he has met with Tibetan Buddhist nuns from all over the world to discuss and challenge the apparent misogyny within Buddhism and agrees it goes against Buddhist philosophy. He loves sun visors. <laughs> has admitted to having a temper at times, not surprised if you had to flee your own country. A wholesome guy all around. In case you didn't realize I'm reading from a list, I wrote at like 3 in the morning. The only thing he doesn't like is the Chinese government. <laughs> he loves everything else unconditionally. So yeah, that's my episode on the Dalai Lama, the history of the Dalai Lama, and the history of Tibet. So thank you. Now I'm going to rattle off some sources. BBC's Religion Branch Tibetan Buddhism web article. There was no author, um, but it was very useful. And I want to trust BBC, but you do with that what you will. Tibet, A History by Sam Van Shaikh. The Dawn of Tibet, The Ancient Civilization of the Roof of the World by John Vincent Belaza. Forbidden Memory, Tibet During the Cultural Revolution by Sarang Woser some lecture notes from college, and a little wiki. So yes, thank you so much for listening if you're still here. And if you are, please subscribe slash follow on whatever you're listening to this on. 
Download it if you can. And please do follow me on Instagram if you want to see what I'm posting and you want to get a heads up on when the next episode's coming out or maybe get a sneak peek or maybe just to say hi. So yeah, that's all for today and I will see you guys on the next one. Thank <laughs> you.